Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and my guest today is Martin Yant, who was my guest last time. He is a private investigator who played a very important role in Jen Reach's case, and Jen was our guest uh, a few weeks back. She had been charged with child molestation way back in 1984 in Ohio. Her case was overturned in 1996 after she had served about 12 years behind bars. It is good to have you back, Marty. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. All right. We have spoken about Jen's case in detail, both, uh, I guess, mostly with with Jen and a little bit less so with you. Um, Do you think it might be important for our listeners to learn more about how someone like Jen, who was completely innocent, is convicted of a serious crime like this? How does this thing kind of thing happen? And is it rare? No, it's not rare. It occurs every day. Uh, The estimates of wrongful convictions have uh, increased since I gave you the figure that I used from an Ohio State study back in uh, the early 80s that estimated 10,000 people were wrongly convicted of serious crimes every year. Uh, That's pretty much been doubled to about 20,000. Now, there are those who say it probably is even higher than that, and uh, not necessarily people being convicted at trial, but because of the serious charges that they face and their their lack of being able to afford good counsel, a whole lot of people plead guilty even though they're innocent. Right, right. But um, in Jen's case, both she and Robert Aldridge insisted on their innocence, so they did go to trial. And that allowed me to get a pretty good idea of how this thing's un- this thing unfolded. And it's a classic example of hysteria, which occurs in other instances. Um, you know, I have a case here in Columbus, a murder case, in which uh, hysteria seemed to uh, play a role because the there was a missing woman uh, and a lot of people just became outraged and turned their uh, you know turned their attention to the woman's husband and they started discussion pages and everybody just pretty much came to the same conclusion that he was the killer uh, and it was just kind of interesting to see how that play out in something other than uh, uh, child abuse. But uh, in 1984, that was sort of the peak of child abuse hysteria. And it started with the McMartin uh, preschool case in Los Angeles, which generated tremendous uh, uh, publicity. and kicked off all kinds of investigations uh, and fueled by fear and rumor across the country. Um, And one of the places that that hysteria caught hold was in Dayton, when some rumor started in the apartment complex that Jen lived in with Robert Aldridge. Um, 
that started with discussion about kids having sex with kids. And as I track this back, it appeared to have been started because a couple kids were caught playing doctor in uh, the shrubbery, hidden by the shrubbery. <laughs> and, but of course, the parents couldn't accept the fact that maybe their kid was just prematurely a little overly sexually curious. Uh, so they pressed their kids to blame somebody else. And at first, the kids uh, accused older kids, said the older kids made them do this. Well, then when the older kids' parents got involved, they said, no, 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 our kid wouldn't do this. There had to have been adults. And in the midst of this, in the early stages, there was a neighborhood busybody who decided to conduct her own investigation. And she went around and interviewed kids herself, uh, planning all kinds of false memories. Um, and then she told everybody what she was finding and that there were adults involved. And ultimately, it turned out that there were 24 adults accused of being part of a sex abuse ring. And two of those people were Jen and Robert Aldrich. Um, the hysteria really took hold at that time. And Dr. Gardner talks about hysteria and paranoia kind of go hand in hand. And I received some documents uh, that weren't turned over in discovery of this busybody's notes on her investigation. And along with that, there were some uh, journal entries by the mother who sort of took hold of this and ran it and started demonstrations and more investigations and pressuring the police department. But in her personal diary, you could clearly see paranoia becoming a factor. She thought people were spying on her. Uh, she saw people peeking in her windows. Uh, somebody was following her. And so she was clearly being overcome by paranoia. So those things joined together. People got more and more upset. And this had been preceded by another child abuse case just involving one adult in that same complex. Um, and the mother in that case uh, wasn't happy with the way the case was handled. She organized demonstrations in front of the courthouse. And so the parents were pretty well aware of what happened then, that the justice, uh, the justice they believe uh, wasn't served. So, uh, so there had been a seed planted by this prior case. So when this blew up, the parents pretty quickly hit the streets uh, and the media talking about the horrible abuse going on. And it got to the point that right before Jenny and Robert were arrested, there were two incidents in which a gang of parents, some of whom carrying knives and one of whom had a gun, surrounding different men, two men, whose name had come up as one of the abusers. So they circled both of them in the streets. And in one case, 
they knocked the man down and were proceeding to try to castrate him oh. when the police arrived. I mean, that's how bad this was. And there was another case where they did the same thing. And at that time, I think the detective who was investigating the case decided she had to put a halt to this. So like the next day, she arrested Jen and Robert to say, see, we did our job. And except the job she did was horrific. And uh, the presumption of guilt was there from the beginning, but the facts weren't. So she started twisting the facts and then using coercion. And uh, when it got to the point uh, of trying to get children to make definitive statements supposedly about Robert and Jen's involvement in this, uh, she called in three boys from one family. And ultimately, uh, she got them to agree uh, to say that Jen and Robert and their friends had sexually abused them repeatedly. And they named, you know, a number of other kids who were abused, including little girls. And but I obtained documents through a public records request. And I'll never forget this. When I went to pick up the investigative file, uh, and this was in 1992, I believe, or maybe early 93. Uh, I remember the assistant police chief sitting there with me and he said, well, there are some things in this file that I don't think you should see. But the city attorney says I have to give them to you. So here they are. Well, I could see why he didn't want me to see these because they showed what a poor investigation this was. And in the case of these three boys, they insisted over and over again that there was no sexual abuse. They didn't even know Jenny and Robert. Uh, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And the detective then got very heavy handed with them. And she told the oldest of the kids, who was 12, that either he tell what really happened or what she believed happened, or she was going to put him in juvenile detention. And he still stuck to his story. I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing happened. Uh, so she did throw him in juvenile detention for one night. By the next day, the kid was willing to tell them oh, whatever gosh. they wanted to hear. He must have been so, terrified. And then she threw his, she detained his younger brother. Didn't uh, put him in juvenile, but detained him also for a short while in a jail cell. Mm -hmm. And so then he echoed his older brother, and then the third gave the same type of statement. And when I read the transcript, I was really struck by the fact of the closing arguments of the prosecutor who said to the jury, if you believe nothing else in this case, believe the tears of the oldest boy, whom he called Little Johnny, and he said, believe the tears of little Johnny, because those were the tears of truth. So I decided I had to track them down. And they had a, a last name that was quite often misspelled. So it was kind of hard. And this was back before there were 
computerized investigative databases where you can find somebody quite often uh, pretty easily. But I finally found them. And so I called and little Johnny, who at that point was 20, answered the phone. And I told him, you know, what I was doing. And I said that uh, what the prosecutor had said at the end of the trial about his tears of truth and that Jen had told me those weren't the tears of truth. Those were the tears of lies because she knew this kid didn't want to be saying this. And he said, you're absolutely right. I was made to lie. And so were my brothers. And if we didn't lie, they also threatened my mother with child endangerment. And so I went down, took statements from all three of them and their mother, who told me when I came there, she said, we've been waiting for someone like you to show up here. She said, we couldn't believe what we were forced into saying, what my boys were forced into saying. And so I got those statements and they told me about some other kids who felt the same way. And so I went and got some other recantations and then was able just to, with the other evidence that was never turned over. There were all together were like, I think 28 pages of reports that were never turned over to the defense that included statements saying from children saying this never happened we don't know who these people are uh all that was withheld uh, was also withheld that that they had the kids physically examined none of the children showed signs of sexual abuse and so that was all withheld and it based came down to the testimony of six kids uh, including the three that I had uh, originally gotten recantations from. So I published a story about that in the Ohio Observer in January 1994. And it made a few ripples, but you know, I had a very limited circulation. That was the first issue of my magazine. So um, I decided I had to do more. And I had developed a connection with the local alternative newspaper in Dayton called Dayton, the Dayton Voice. And so I talked to the editor there and she agreed to publish an updated version of that story. And uh, the Dayton Voice had a pretty good circulation. And when that hit the streets, uh, the legal community started scrambling. Hmm. And because a lot of people knew that this case really was horrific. And so eventually, uh, the trial judge ordered an evidentiary hearing, which is similar to a trial, uh, and which, you you know, people can testify based mostly on what is concerned, considered new evidence in which these recantations and other statements and withheld documents uh, would be considered new evidence. So the evidentiary hearing went on for a week and the prosecutor deliberately subpoenaed me and had me separated from the hearing. So I had to sit outside. Uh, and the reason they didn't want me around is they blamed us all on me. 
And they said, I bribed these kids with promises of book rights or movie rights. And I, I was heavy handed. I'm a fanatic to think that there are wrongful convictions, blah, blah, blah. And the prosecutor at one point, uh, you know, just basically accused me of fabricating this whole case for publicity and money. And, you know, that was pretty outrageous. So, uh, but the judge didn't buy it. And he was a judge from a neighbor's, uh, neighboring small town. And his opinion said that even though he wanted to believe the recantations of the children, that court president says that recantations should be viewed very skeptically. So he couldn't overturn the convictions uh, based only on their recantations. So then he turned to all these undisclosed documents that I obtained through a public records request. And he pointed out that these were in violation of the Brady rule, right? which was a Supreme Court decision that said prosecutors must turn over any exculpatory documents. And these clearly had been withheld. And based on that, he overturned the convictions. What, what, so, were, the, what were those documents uh, that played such a key role that you had? Well, the original statements taken by the neighborhood busybody, okay. uh, which were very much in contradiction to what was later presented at trial, even the original statements of the children. Mm-hmm. before they were threatened threatened or pressured into accusing Jen and Robert. Uh, information about the near riots where two suspects were surrounded mm-hmm. and there was an attempt to actually castrate one of the men. Uh, none of this was turned over, uh, as well as the medical records that show showed that none of the children showed any signs of abuse. Uh, now, it's pretty common now for the quote-unquote experts for the state to say, well, uh, a child can be raped and still not show any physical signs of the assault, which is true, but it's kind of just a common thing. If there weren't any, if there wasn't any evidence, it wasn't because nothing happened. It's because that child abuse doesn't always show physically. Yeah. So, uh, So these documents painted a quite different picture of what happened and the sloppy investigation done by this attorney. And uh, and even in her testimony, she contradicted her own reports uh, in significant ways to make the story better. And so the, that's what the judge used to overturn the convictions. And what, what is very frustrating, I'm sure, to you, to me, to Jen, is probably nothing happened to any of the people who, in essence, put Jen away, right? Sadly, that's true. Uh, the detective retired, but she wasn't disciplined in any way. Uh, the one of the prosecutors retired pretty quickly. And uh, so everybody just went on. And if you ask them to this day, they'll probably say, well, we know they did it. 
you know, mm -hmm. uh, some prosecutors will never relent. Yeah. And so nothing happened to anybody except for Jen and Robert, who did 12 years in prison. Uh, and there's nothing worse. You know, I've always said about my book that a lot of people are presumed guilty, but nobody is more presumed guilty than a person accused of child abuse. People will automatically say, well, children don't lie. Right. I don't know how people with their parents or grandparents can say children never lie. They lie all the time. They point the finger at somebody else to just try to get out of trouble. It's not malicious. It's just right. kind of second nature. And so that, but that's what people assume and prosecutors. And at that time, the children's services uh, agencies in this country were out to find every child abuser under every bed. And so there was an automatic presumption of guilt. Uh, and Dr. Gardner called this the child abuse industry, where if somebody makes an accuse, accusation, the child abuse industry will make sure it sticks. So there have just been numerous cases of uh, people who should have known better uh, making up stories or jumping to conclusions uh, that weren't warranted. And so a whole lot of people were wrongly convicted and seriously damaged and families destroyed uh, by these accusations. Many of those people convicted in the mid 1980s to the mid 1990s uh, have had their convictions overturned, but families were destroyed, children were traumatized, uh, and you know it, it it was all so unnecessary if they hadn't lost their heads. But they they lost their heads, and there's a history of that. That actually some of this hysteria started with the multiple personality disorder. Uh, thing that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, fueled greatly by the movie and book Sybil about yes. a supposed multiple personality. And that all turned out to be a fraud. Uh, but, you know, we went from a couple cases of multiple personality disorder uh, being claimed in a defense to thousands of multiple personality uh defenses after the book Sybil came out yeah. so then it went to child abuse child abuse hysteria and so when then when that ran its course uh there the next phase was uh recovered memory mm -hmm. uh, therapists getting adults who may have some troubles in their past trying to figure out what happened and all of a sudden, a number of them were saying, well, I was abused by my dad, or my dad actually killed one of my friends. Uh, and there were people wrongly convicted even of murder because of these recovered memories, which uh, now you barely ever hear of recovered memory mm -hmm. because it be became so discredited. Uh, but then some of these same people, it's interesting when you trace the history, some of these same people who have been through all these different phases uh then moved on to shaken baby syndrome oh yes 
And that became hysteria. And now that's greatly medically discredited. Right. So there's a history of this type of thing. And it, it's really terrifying when you see what it can do to a community and to a family and to an individual who gets caught up in this. So uh, the last question I was going to ask you, because we're almost out of time, is, is there anything that we can do differently to prevent this terrible miscarriage of justice from occurring? Well, conduct proper investigations. And to a certain extent, there have been a lot of reforms. Uh, That's good. Therapists and Children's service workers don't always necessarily assume the child is telling the truth. They 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 open they open uh, they're questioning a lot different with open questions. They don't pin the kid into a corner and say your daddy did this to you, didn't he? Which is what they used to do. So it's become more sophisticated. Uh, police investigations are much better and better documented. But I still I have a case right now where clearly law enforcement went off the rails in an investigation and so it still happens but quite often there's more skepticism than there well, that, used to be that's good that's a good thing well marty i so appreciate your time today and all that you have taught us with your tremendous experience in this area and I wish you well in the cases that you're dealing with now and going forward. And thank you so very, very much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Harriet. Welcome. And that's it for Pursuing Justice. We'll see you next time for um, our guests from Centurion Ministries. And thanks for listening.